Well, we're there in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 is basically where everything changes for the life of David. Up to this point, David has had his problems and his issues, but everything has been very positive. From here, things go downhill uh, for, for David, and, and they, they begin in this chapter with choices that he makes. And of course, you know uh, the, the famous story of David and Bathsheba. And, and, and this goes down in history. From, from now on, people will not only say David and Goliath, but they'll say David and Bathsheba or David and Bathsheba. And if you look at verse number one there, the Bible says this, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. Now, you need to understand everything is in the Bible for a reason. And God is making a point here, and he's telling us this is the time when kings go forth to battle. Of course, this had to do with the, with the fact that when it was wintertime, it was too cold and, and too difficult for them to be able to advance. And, and basically, they would uh, kind of have a truce, and they would stop fighting. And, and when it warmed up a little bit, it was the time that kings go forth to battle. A good king is supposed to go out and battle with his troops. But the Bible says that David sent Joab. He sends his general to do the fight on his behalf and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. Notice what the Bible says at the end of verse number one. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that we begin this chapter, we end this chapter with a very grievous sin and multiple sins that David has where he commits adultery and where he even kills a man as a result of it. But it begins with a temptation and we're going to see his temptation here in a minute. But I want you to notice that David opened himself up for sin and opened himself up for temptation. And the first thing that God kind of identifies for us or emphasizes is the fact that David was supposed to be fighting. David was supposed to be at battle. It was the time when kings go forth to battle. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And listen to me. We open ourselves up for temptation and sin when we don't learn to control our time properly. See, you know, you know, the, you know the old uh, saying, you know, uh, idle time is devil time. And the truth of the matter is that God wants us. You know that God called us to spiritual warfare. God called us to a good fight. God called us to fight. The Bible says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. God called you and I to engage in that fight. And part of the reason that God wants us to be fighting the battles, not just of soul winning and reaching people with the gospel, but also the battles of, of, of fighting for morality and for proper doctrine today, Part of that is to keep us out of trouble. And you know, one of the things that concerns me, you know, today, today, I think we've had a couple of weeks now where we had almost no protesters out there. And, uh, you know, on Sunday there was no protesters out there. And today we've got six protesters out there, and that's fine. One of the things that concerns me is that when this whole Orlando thing happened, you know, and we had all the big protests and we had all the big, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of people coming out here on Wednesday night and coming up back on, uh, on Sunday. And we had all the news camera. And even during the conference, you know, we had a bigger protest and we had news camera. You know, one of the things that concerns me is that during that time, a lot of you stepped up spiritually. And I'm thankful for it. 
And a lot of you got excited because you know what happens when you get persecuted? You get excited about the things of God. And, and you got excited and you started being faithful and you started showing up to services that you don't normally go to. And you started showing up for soul winning when maybe you don't normally do that. And you started getting more interested and engaged in the things of God. But my concern is when we move this building and the protesters are gone. Or when they finally get bored and just leave. When there hasn't been a news camera for months, are you going to just get disengaged and say, oh, well, that's not exciting anymore? Hey, listen to me. It's your job to stay engaged in the battle whether the news people or the protesters are here or not. Look, we were fighting a battle against the sodomite agenda before the news showed up. Do you understand that? We are fighting a, a battle to preach the gospel to this community before, uh, uh, before any sermons went viral. And, and look... David got himself into trouble when he said, there's a fight, but I'll let someone else do it. There's a battle, but I'll let Joab go. There's a soul winning time, but I'm not going to engage. I will tarry still here at Jerusalem. And we open ourselves up when we're not fighting. God wants us to be engaged in battle. God wants us to be engaged in, in, in the spiritual warfare. And David here, he, you say, was it a sin for him to not go to battle? All I'm saying is this. He opened himself up for temptation when he allowed himself to have a lot of extra time. You know, we, here at Mary Baptist Church, we, we do have a lot of activities. We have church on Sunday morning. We have church on Sunday night. We have church on Wednesday night. We have church in, uh, We have Saturday soul winning. We have other soul winning uh, times where people go out during the week. We have picnics and we have conferences and we have this and we have that. And you know what? I think you ought to be engaged in all of it as much as possible. And I understand sometimes you work in the evening and you can't go to this or you can't go to that. But listen to me. It, the, the, what I've noticed is the people that are the most engaged, the people that are the most uh, 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 involved in the battle are the ones that are least likely to get themselves into trouble. I, I, I get frustrated. Sometimes we have people come to our church and they, they, they meet with me personally and they say, Pastor, I, I struggle with drugs. Or Pastor, I, I struggle with alcohol. Or Pastor, I struggle with this and I struggle with that. And I think to myself, man, out of anybody, you're the one that needs to be here every service. I mean, I, and look, and you say, well, I don't struggle with those things. You still need to be here. I mean, I grew up in a home. Our rule at our house was if the doors of the church were open, we were there. We were involved. We were engaged. Why? Because look, being in a fight, being busy will keep you out of trouble. But you know what David decided? David decided, I don't have to show up to Wednesday night service. David decided, I don't have to show up to soul winning. David decided, I don't have to show up to Sunday night. David decided, it's fine if I miss church, if I just go every other week, if I just kind of hit and miss. It's, it, it's not a big deal, but listen to me. Whenever you disengage, you're opening yourself up for temptation. Because idle time is devil time. And here David opened himself up. Notice the second thing he did. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass in, the, in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, notice what he says here, he saw, you see that word saw? He saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, I've, in my life, I, I grew up an independent fundamental Baptist, and I've heard a lot of preaching on the subject of David and specifically about this. And, you know, you, you, I've heard a lot of preaching, uh, you know, basically saying Bathsheba had nothing to do with this. This was all David's doing. And, and she didn't play a role. I've heard sermons where Bathsheba was just as bad and she was just as wrong. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not sure 
what the case is. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. I, I know this. I, it's very seldom that you ever have a problem where all of the blame falls on one you know, person and none of the blame falls on the other. If I had to take a guess, Bathsheba probably played a role in it. I don't think she played a major role because as we will notice as we go through the entire book that the blame comes down hard on David. But, uh, you know, maybe she shouldn't have been washing herself up there. Maybe she should have made sure that she was uh, modest or made sure that nobody could see her. But here we see that David goes up there. And, and again, do, do I believe that David went up there? You know, the Bible tells us he wasn't able to sleep. Now, here's the thing. If he would have been in battle, he would have been able to sleep. If he would have been out working, he would have been able to sleep. But he's sitting around idle doing nothing. And by the way, let me just say, you know, if you say, well, I, I struggle with sleep. Half the time, the reason people struggle with sleep is because they're not active enough. Amen. You know, go run a couple of miles and see if you're going to struggle with falling asleep. You know, and, and here, go soul winning for a while and see if you'll struggle with falling asleep. But here, David is being idle. He's being lazy. He's not doing anything. And it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed. So he's not able to sleep. He rose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the, of the king's house. And, and he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful. Look upon. Listen, David opened himself up for temptation by not controlling his time, but you know what? And this is more for the men, but David opened himself up for temptation by not controlling his eyes. Amen. Bible says, Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? The Bible tells us that we need to be very careful, especially men need to be careful with their eyes and what they look on. Because here's the thing, you say, well, well, he just looked at her. He just saw her. What's the big deal? But here's the big deal. Oftentimes, and we'll see it in this chapter, small sins lead to larger sins. And listen to me, sir. You may be getting up in the middle of the night because you can't sleep. And you're not up on the roof, but you're searching the web. And there are things that catch your eye, and you better be careful, and you better figure out that, look, your eyes are going to destroy you. They will destroy your marriage. They will destroy who you are if you don't learn to control. And look, this wasn't a problem. This didn't just happen for David in chapter 11. David has had a problem with lust from, the, from when we've known David. I mean, he already had a wife, and then he had to add another wife, and he had to add another wife, then he had to add a concubine, and then he had to add a concubine. Now he's getting up in the middle of the night. I mean, good night, David. You, you have a, a choice of all these women you're legitimately married to. Why are you up there looking at someone you're not married to? But he fell because he did not learn how to control his time, and he did not learn how to control his eyes. The Bible says, you don't have to turn here, but James 1.14 says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And entice. So we see the temptation. But I'd like you to notice the transgression. Look at verse 3. 2 Samuel 11. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. So he sees this woman. And it turns into more than just. Look sometimes you can't avoid what you see. But you can't avoid the second look. You can't avoid the lingering look. And he saw this woman. And he looked upon her. And he lusted after her. And then he, took, he takes it a step further. And notice what he does in verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. Now he's asking questions. Hey, who is that? Notice what the Bible says. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, 
the daughter of Eli. Now notice these words, the wife of. Now look, as soon as he, as soon as David heard those words, as soon as he calls his little servant and says, "Hey, who, who's that woman over there bathing herself?" and they say, "Isn't that Bathsheba?" The wife. As soon as he hears these words, the wife of. That should have been game over. We're done having this talk. No more. I mean, look, it wasn't right for David to marry all these women, but you know he did that, and and, and for and that's a sin and it's wrong. But that wasn't illegal, and, and God allows that because often God allows us to have sin. But here, now he's looking at it. Well, see, before, he, he was married, and he'd find a woman that wasn't married, and he would lust after her, and he would marry her. But now there's a problem because now he sees a woman. He's got his eyes on, but she's married. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 4, and David sent messengers to, uh, I'm sorry, look at verse 3 again. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Notice what David does, verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and, she lay, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. Now look, everything in the Bible for a reason. And what the Bible's telling us here is that she had recently gone through her monthly cycle, and she wasn't, she, she wasn't unclean to the point where he could be with her. But here's what the Bible's telling us. She wasn't pregnant. Okay? You don't have a cycle when you're pregnant. So she wasn't pregnant before she was with David, and she returned unto her house. Now, I want you to understand this. David's sin here was a crime. The first thing we see here is the crime of David's sin. Keep your place there in, uh, in, in 2 Samuel. That's our text for tonight. But go to Leviticus chapter number 20. Leviticus chapter number 20. In your Bible, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And I want you to, while you turn there, let me read for you out of Exodus 20 and verse 14. You know the famous Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment says this, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I want you to understand something, that David was living under the Levitical law. David was the king living during the you know, the law of the land was, you know, we've been talking a lot about, well, these homos are worthy of death, but it's not our job to do it because we don't live under the Levitical law. But guess what? David was living under the Levitical law. And the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, are you there? Leviticus 20 and verse 10 says this, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. God placed the death penalty on adultery. And at this point, David is worthy of death. Now, David doesn't die, and God makes that choice. And you know what? God, God is the one who makes choices, and God decides these things. But David has actually done, performed a crime. He's, he's actually gone against the law by taking another man's wife, even if he's a king. Now, you say, well, today when people commit adultery, how should we deal with it? Well, today we do have a great example that everybody likes to throw in our face about the homos, except for the fact that it has nothing to do with the homos. But, you know, there was a woman caught in adultery that was brought to Jesus, and Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. You know, so you say, well, what, what should we do with adultery today? We should preach against it. We should, we, if people confess their sins and, and, and they repent of that wicked sin, then we should just forgive them and, and move on. We don't live under that Levitical law. But I want you to understand, David did. And we see the crime of David's sin. And, and, and the reason I'm making the point is this. This is a big sin in the eyes of God. 
God thought it so serious that he even put the death penalty on it and said, you know, the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I mean, that's how serious God felt about it. Now, I don't, I don't want to preach tonight all about adultery, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, this idea of adultery because it's not something we talk a lot about, and uh, it's something we should talk about. Now, let, let's run a couple of verses just real quickly. Go to the book of 1 Timothy chapter number 5. If you can find those T-books in the New Testament, you got First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And listen, God can forgive sin. Maybe you're here tonight, you say, well, I've had that sin. You know, that's a terrible sin and we will preach against it and it needs to be preached again. But God can forgive you and God can restore you. And I believe that God can even restore a marriage, you know, but it's, it's, it's a sin that is a very bad sin. And I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes on how to safeguard your marriage against adultery. There are Basically, and, and I, we could pre- I could preach a whole sermon on this, and I, I could give you multiple points, but I want to give you just two quick points tonight on the idea of how do you safeguard, for those of you that are married, how do you safeguard, how do you put a, 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 a barrier in your marriage to, to, to provide safety to keep you from uh, having the temptation of adultery in your life? Now listen to me, the Bible calls looking on a woman to lust after her adultery and that, uh, in your heart, and that's a sin, and we preach against that, and, and, and if you're doing that, you know, you need to stop. You need to get right with God. And the Bible talks about marrying someone who's divorced as adultery, and, and we believe that, and we preach that. But right now, I'm talking about, like, what we all can, you know, what the world thinks about adultery. I'm talking about a man who's married, uh, or a woman who's be, uh, married, being with another person physically. Are you there in First Timothy chapter 5? Let me give you just two safeguards that you can have to protect your marriage from adultery. The first one is this. You need to keep a proper relationship with the members of the opposite sex that you are not married to. Let me say that again. You need to keep a proper relationship with the members of the opposite sex that you are not married to. Are you there in 1 Timothy 5? Look at verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says. God is telling us how we ought to treat different people at church. He says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. He's talking about how you approach the pastor. You shouldn't approach the pastor to rebuke him. Even if you have an issue with him, you should entreat him as a father. You should do it respectfully. Notice what he says. And the younger men is brethren. The reason that we call each other brethren around here and we'll say brother so-and-so, brother so-and-so, is because the Bible tells us that we are to treat each other as brothers. And it's good. Look, it's fine for men in the church, the younger men especially, to cut up and to laugh and to joke around and to work together and to have fun together. Hey, that's fine because the Bible says that we are to treat, uh, treat the younger men as brethren. And you are to treat the elder as, uh, as a father and treat him as a father. And, and, and I don't have time to preach this, but the term elder there is talking about spiritual maturity, not talking about uh, physically mature, because we know uh, Paul told uh, Timothy, he said, let no man despise thy youth. So Timothy was obviously a young man, but yet he was the elder. And look, you should treat your pastor with respect. I'm not your uh, friend. You know what I mean? I am your friend, but you know what I mean? I, look, and you say, well, you're just on a power trip. Okay, then forget about me. When I die and the next guy that becomes a pastor, treat him with respect and treat him as a father. Don't get too comfortable with the pastor. Don't get too comfortable to where everything becomes this, this joke. And, and look, we can have a good time, and, and that's not what I'm talking about. But here it tells us, and the younger men as brethren. Notice, the elder women as mothers. We ought to have some respect for the elder women in, in the church. 
And, and I don't have time to develop it, but the Bible tell, gives us an actual uh, age range as to what we ought to consider an elder woman. And we ought to consider the elder women as, as mothers and treat them like you would treat your mother and be kind and respectful. But notice what he says. I want you to notice this. And the younger as sisters. He says the elder women as mothers. He says the younger as sisters. All right? Because he said the young men as brethren, right? So then he says the younger as sisters. And, and, and by the way... Elder is 60 and up, sis, younger is 60 and, 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 and below that, according to the Bible. Some of you are like, yes, 57, I'm still younger, you know, whatever. <laughs> hey, but look, he says the younger has sisters, but notice, notice the caveat he adds to the end of the statement for, because he said for the men, the, the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, but then notice what he says for the younger as sisters, with all purity. You see that? You know what he's saying? He said, Men, be careful how you treat the other women in the church. Make sure you treat them with all purity. Make sure there's no uh, wrong intentions or wrong thoughts there. Make sure you treat them like you would treat them your sister. And he says, hey, do it with all purity. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. Listen to me. We've never had an issue with this at Verity Baptist Church. I pray that we never do. I hope I never get a phone call about adultery going on in our church or, 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 you know, either a couple in the church or even couples within the church. I mean, if you want to see Pastor Jimenez, throw a fit. I mean, if you want to know about a sermon that will end up on the news, (laughs) just let me hear about adultery uh, happening in our church. And I hope that never happens. But listen to me. You need to set safeguards, and we need to be careful and make sure that you're not developing friendships that are a little too close, a little too lax with members of the opposite sex that you're not married to. Go to Proverbs chapter number 6. You need to, look, in my life, I, I do my best. I, I, do, I do my best to, to, to be, and look, and we're not Amish, okay, I'm not saying that we need to be like an Amish church where all the men sit on this side and all the women sit on this side. It's totally fine for men and women to interact and to be kind to each other and to talk to each other. You know, but look, you cross a line. And look, you, you, you ought to be careful. I, try, I, I don't meet with women in the office by myself. Sometimes a woman will walk into the office while I'm in there. I do my best to step out. You say, why do you do that? Because you think you're going you're gonna to fall. No, I just, I just have some safeguards in my life and also want to protect my own personal testimony. Sometimes women will say, Pastor, I need to meet with you. And I tell them, hey, you know, you meet with me and my wife. Or we can meet with you and your husband. But we're not meeting together. I don't, I don't ride in vehicles alone with women that I'm not married to. You know, I'll, I'll ride with my sister. <laughs> you know, but you, you say, well, Pastor, what if, what if you saw one of the church ladies broken down on the side of the road? You wouldn't stop and give them a ride? I'd stop and let them take my car, and then I'd call a cab. That's what I'd do. But I'm not going to get in a car with a woman that I'm not married. You say, well, I think you're just a little extreme. I just think that we need to set some safeguards around our marriages and make sure that we don't allow this temptation of adultery. And listen to me. You start getting too chummy. You start getting too comfortable. You start getting too friendly with someone that you're not married to. You're heading down the wrong road. And sometimes people get upset because I have to have talks with people and say, look, don't talk to women that you're not married to. Don't, don't talk to men that you're not married to, whatever it is. But listen, it's very important that we treat the younger with all purity. Because look, the Bible says that there are some people out there who are looking, who are hunting to have and commit adultery. Are you there in Proverbs 6? Look at verse number 24. Proverbs chapter number 6 and verse number 24. Some of you are like, Pastor, are you upset about something? We're just in 2 Samuel 11. 
don't know if you noticed, we were in 2 Samuel 10 the week before that, 2 Samuel 9 before that. But it's good to talk about these things. Proverbs 6, look at verse 24. Notice what the Bible says. To keep thee from the evil woman. You see that? And here we're talking about the evil woman, but that could be applied to an evil woman, an evil man. Notice, from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. The word strange there is talking about a strange, uh, stranger, someone that you're not familiar with. Okay? Now, here's what he says. Hey, he's talking about the, the word of God can keep you from the evil woman. And here's, here's a good clue as to a woman or a man, ladies, that you need to stay away from, from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. Now, let me say this. I don't think there's anything wrong with compliments or encouragement. From time to time, one of the guys will get up here and preach, and my wife might walk up to him and say, hey, that, you, you did a good job with your sermon. I, I really liked your sermon. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's appropriate. I'm not talking about that. But you want to be careful with people that are constantly giving you flattery. And you say, well, what's the difference between a compliment and flattery? And look, there's not much of a difference, but let me tell you what the difference is. Compliments are sincere. They are a sincere product of gratitude. You are actually grateful for something. I am actually, you know, sometimes I'll I'll say to... I'll say to different workers, you know, the, to the ushers or, or like to Brother Carlton in the sound booth or whatever, and I'll say, you know, thank you for what you do. I'm not just, you know, trying to uh, give them a big head. I'm really thankful that someone's taking care of the sound system while I'm up here preaching. I, I, that, that's actually produced from a, gra- a grateful heart. I'm thankful that someone drove the van today. I'm thankful that someone cleaned the building. I'm, I'm thankful. So look, a compliment should be sincere, and it should be produced from a heart of gratitude. Flattery is cheap, and it's meant to manipulate. Where someone's just telling you something they want you to hear because they want to manipulate you. They want to get you to do something for them. And here we're told, hey, you know, be careful about the woman, the strange woman that has flattery. Look at verse 25. Notice what it says. Lust not after her, uh, lust not after her beauty in thine heart. Isn't that what? David started. Notice, lust not after her beauty in thine heart. Neither let her take, we, take thee with her eyelids. Notice verse 26, for by means of a whorish. What's the word whorish means? Here, here's the word you and I would use today. We call her a whore. I can't believe you say that. That's a Bible word. I'm always, I'm always amazed by people that are like, they're so offended that you use certain words. It's like, God uses that word. The Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words, all right? And here he says, look, by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the, uh, notice, don't miss this, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. You may not believe this, you may not think it's true, but listen to me, there are women out there who their goal is to find a guy that's married and hook up with him. And it's not even about the guy, it's just that's what they do. There are men out there, ladies, especially you, you, you're, you, you're off at the workforce and there's some guy that's always flattering you, always complimenting you. There are people out there that are looking to commit adultery. It's a game to them. It's a hunt to them. This is what God is warning us about. Look at verse 7. Can a man take a fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burnt? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burnt? Look look at verse 29. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. He says this is a sin that cannot be excused. 
Because then he gives an example of a time. There are some times that you can sin and it's wrong, but we can at least see your point. Say, so what are you talking about? Well, look at the example of verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steal and satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. He said, look, if you steal because you're hungry, now look, if you're found, you're going to have to pay. You're going to be in trouble. It's not going to be forgiven. But people aren't going to be angry and mad. They'll understand if you're stealing to feed your family. But notice what he says in verse 32. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom. Neither will he, will he rest content, though thou Give us many gifts. He says, look, adultery is unexcusable. You can't say, well, here's why I did it, and think that people are going to understand. There's no excuse. It is not an innocent sin. He says, you need to stay away. And you need to be careful of these women and these men who are looking to commit adultery, and they're getting a little too chummy and a little too comfortable and a little too... Uh, friendly with you ladies or friendly with you men. You're there in Proverbs 6. Just look at Proverbs chapter 7. I mean, God talks a lot about this. In Proverbs 7, he, he gives us this, an entire chapter on it. I, I, let, let's just read it. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live in my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinsman. He's talking about the fact that you're reading the Bible, you're learning the Bible, you're going to church, being taught the Bible. He says, keep it close to you. He said, tie it upon thy fingers, write them upon the table. He's talking about memorize the Bible. You say, why do I need all that Bible, all that wisdom? Here's why. Uh, look, look at verse 5. That they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger does this sound familiar? Which flattereth with her words. I mean, look at how evil this woman is. For at the window of my house, I looked through my, through my casement. This is Solomon saying, I, I'm, I'm watching this happen. Notice what he says, verse 7. And beheld among the simple ones. You know what simple means? Dumb. Not smart. That's the one that lacketh understanding in Proverbs 6.32. He said, I beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youth a young man void of understanding, passing through the streets near her corner. Look, don't go near that corner. Don't go near that house. He's saying, stay away from this woman. And he went the way of her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black of dark. And by the way, when I was growing up, my dad would often say to us, there's nothing good a Christian young man or a Christian young lady, if you're not, look, if you're, if you're out there with your wife on a day and it's midnight, you know, do what you're doing. But listen to me, young men and young women that aren't married, my, this is what my dad would tell us when we were growing up, there's nothing good for you to be doing out at 2 in the morning, at 1 in the morning. At midnight. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. If you need to be going out and all sorts in the middle of the night, you're just going to be getting yourself into trouble. This young man is out just roaming the streets in the middle of the night. Notice what the Bible says. Look at verse 8. Passing through the streets near her corner, and he went the way of her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with an attire of an harlot. Why don't you stay away women that are dressed like that? And of a subtle heart, she is loud and stubborn. Isn't that the opposite of a meek and quiet spirit? 
Her feet abide not in her house. Hey, listen, guys, listen to me, especially you single guys. Listen up. If you're dating a girl who's loud and stubborn, run screaming and yelling in the other direction. She's like, yeah, she's loud and stubborn, but not towards me, just towards everyone else. But it's going to be you, okay? She's going to be yelling at you, being loud towards you, being stubborn at you. You want meek and quiet spirit. Look at verse 11. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. She's not a keeper at home. Now is she without, now in the streets and lieth and wait at every corner. So she caught him. She's embracing him. She's touching. Look, the Bible says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So she caught him and kissed him and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vow. She said, I, I, I'm right with God. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. Notice how wicked this woman is. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry and carved works with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. The good man, notice what she says, look at verse 19. The good man is not at home, talking about her husband. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day. She said, he took a lot of money. He's on a long trip. He's not coming. This woman is wicked. Look at verse 21. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dark uh, till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasted to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. I guess the husband came home a little sooner. I mean, that's what it, it, and he got. It, the, the Bible tells us that they put a dart through his liver. Notice verse 24. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. I mean, do you understand? God speaks uh, very badly about this thing of adultery and about having a physical relationship with someone once you're married to somebody else. He said, stay away from it. He said, look, he's saying, stay away from this woman. Stay away from her house. And it's not just women it's it's men ladies stay away from the guy that's flattering you that's getting comfortable with you if you want to safeguard your marriage from adultery you need to make sure you're keeping proper relationships with members of the opposite sex it's fine to say hello it's fine to have short conversations that that, that that's fine but listen you start getting way too comfortable with people and you're going to go down the path of adultery go to, go to a second First uh, Corinthians chapter number seven. First Corinthians chapter number seven. So I'm giving you just kind of a couple pointers as to how to safeguard your marriage against adultery. Number one, keep a proper relationship with members of the opposite sex. Look, guys, don't don't be in rooms with women that you're not married to by yourself. Don't don't be driving down the road in a vehicle with a woman you're not married to. I'm just trying. You know, do whatever you want with it. I'm just trying to help you. Listen, ladies, your friends. Your be- you know, when I, let me give another wisdom from my parents growing up. Your best friend ought to be Jesus. That's what my parents always told us. You know, when I was growing up, I'd be like, my best friend at school. My dad was like, your best friend is Jesus, <laughs> you know. And look, your best friend ought to be Jesus, and then you know who your second best friend ought to be is your spouse. And then, you know, after that, all your friends, men, uh, should be males. 
And ladies, your friends should be females. And this whole idea of like, oh, my best friend is some guy and you're, you're a woman, it's a, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Let me give you the second safeguard. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, keep a proper relationship with your spouse. So keep a proper relationship with members of the opposite sex that you're not married to. But you know what? You ought to keep a proper relationship with your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, look at verse 1. Now concerning the thing whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Listen to me, those of you that are not married. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be holding hands. You shouldn't be you know, uh, all over each other while you're dating. You shouldn't be petting. You shouldn't be kissing. Hey, the Bible says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Look at verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So, well, we can't. You, you, we're just so in love. Then get married. To avoid fornica- fornication, look at verse 3. Let the, now, now, now we're moving on to marriage. Nobody says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. So the word benevolence means the act of being kind. He's saying, look, a husband ought to be kind and loving to his wife. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. Wives, you ought to be kind and loving to your husband. And I'm not going to preach on marriage. Obviously, the Bible says that men ought to love their wives and lead their wives and, 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 and be loyal to them. And, men sh- and women should submit to their uh, uh, husbands and, and reverence their husbands. Saying, have a good relationship when it comes to the love in your marriage. But then notice what he says in verse 4. The wife hath not power over her own body. See, it's not just about the emotional aspect. And there's an emotional aspect, men, that you need to fulfill for your wife. And ladies, there's an emotional aspect that you need to fulfill for your husband. But guess what? There's also a physical aspect. Notice what he says in verse 4. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Notice what he says in verse 5. Defraud ye not one another. Defraud means you're, you're ripping someone off. If you get married and refuse to have a physical relationship with your spouse, you are defrauding them. You are ripping them off. Because when you got married, one of, the vow, one of the things you vowed was to have and to hold. You said you would be together physically. And you know, today you got women that I'm going to punish my husband by not letting him. That's wicked. And, or men that say, well, I'm going to punish my wife by not being with her or whatever. Look, the Bible says, defraud ye not one another except to be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. You say, I'm going to fast and pray for two days. I'm going to fast and pray for three days. Then don't come together for that time because you're supposed to be not giving in to the lust of the flesh. We understand that. But listen, he says, other than that, defraud ye not one another and come together again. Why? That Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. He says, look, Satan's going to tempt you if you're not being with your spouse on a regular basis. I'm not trying to be crude, and I'm not trying to get into too many details, but listen to me, okay? Let me give you some pastoral advice. Married couples, if you're coming together once a month, you're in trouble, all right? That's a problem. If it's happening once every three weeks, that's not okay. If it's happening every other week, that's not okay. I'm not trying to be crude or whatever, but listen to me. It needs to be happening once a week at least, if not more than that. Now, look, you're, you're, you've been married for 40 years. You're 70 years old. Do what you do. I'm not, I'm not yeah, talking to you, all right? But look, you're 30 years old. You're 40 years old, and you're, going, you're having a physical relationship with your pops once a month. You're on your way to adultery and divorce. And, and, and you know, this, this idea, it needs to be happening on a regular basis, what the Bible's saying. And it, 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 the most 
the most you, time you should go is how long you're willing to fast for. Now, look, you may do a three-day fast. You may do a seven-day fa seven fast. It's very rare you're doing a 40-day fast. All right? I don't know a lot of people that have done a 40-day fast. So you need to be fulfilling each other's needs in that area, and, and it needs to be something. And you know what? Let me just, we're already on the subject. It's already uncomfortable, so let's just deal with it. All right? It, you, it needs to be something you enjoy. Today you got all these people. You got men saying, like, I don't enjoy being with my wife. Or you got wives saying, I don't enjoy being with my husband. Look, I'm not trying to be mean or crude, but if you don't enjoy it, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it. You need to have a talk. You need to invest some time into it. It should be something you enjoy. I mean, are we crazy? I mean, it should be something you look forward to. It shouldn't be like, I'm doing the duty of my spouse. Good night. It should be God gave that to you so that you can enjoy each other. That's what the Bible says. Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled is what the Bible says. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So, look, you need to have a proper relationship both emotionally and physically with your spouse. And you need to have a proper relationship with members of the opposite sex that you're not married to to safeguard your marriage from adultery. So let, let's get off of that. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11. The rest of the points go, go quickly. So the first thing we saw was the crime of David's sin. He actually committed a crime. God put the death penalty on adultery, and he crossed that line. But I'd like you to notice, secondly, the consequence of David's sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11, look at verse 5. And the woman conceived. You see that? And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Look, the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And listen, you can't mock God. There are consequences for sin. And here, David had an adulterous uh, time with this woman, and then she ends up pregnant. And it's a problem. It's a consequence. Listen, kids, there are consequences for sin. You, you think you're going to grow up? You say, well, I'm going to get away with it. It's not going to, look, it'll catch up to you. God will not be mocked. So we see the crime of David's sin. We see the consequence of David's sin. Let's see quickly the cover-up of David's sin. Look at verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto David, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said uh, to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. So he calls Uriah, ask him, how things are going. Then he says, hey, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess. Yeah, you see that word mess there? A mess of meat from the king. Okay? When I was in the Air Force, we had a mess hall. That's where you went to eat. All right? So the word mess, they're talking about food. So he said there followed him a mess. So, God, so David brings Uriah, asks him some few questions. How are things going? Great. Okay, good, good. All right, listen. Go home to your wife. And then he sends all this food with him. And what's he trying to do? He's trying to cover up his sin because he wants Uriah to basically come back from his deployment for a night, be with his wife, and cover up the sin because then when it's found out that Bathsheba is pregnant, then, every, then Uriah would just assume that it was because he had been with her. Notice verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house 
And when they told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house. Because remember, David sent a mess of meat from the king, right? So those guys show up at Bathsheba's house. They knock on the door. They say, we got, we got a party for you two. They, I mean, they brought the candles and the roses. They brought the food. They brought everything. And Bathsheba was like, Uriah's not here. I'm like, where's Uriah? They find him sleeping at the door of the king's house. Notice verse 10, and when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? Look at verse 11. And Uriah said unto David, The earth and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth? I will not do this thing. And you know, next to my Bible, I've got this word written next to that verse. Ouch. David was supposed to be fighting. David was supposed to be at battle. And here you've got this guy who's just a soul. He's one of David's mighty men, but he's not the leader. He's not Joab. And he says, how can I go and have a good time while the rest of the men are fighting, while the ark of God is out in the field, while Joab is out there? He said, I cannot do this thing. Look at verse 12. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. You see that? And at even he went, so now he tries to get him drunk. But even with that, at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. You say, what is going on here? What is, is this about? Can you get back to Proverbs I don't know if I told you, but you should just keep your place in Proverbs because we're going to look at several passages there. We're, we're almost done, okay? It won't be very long. Proverbs 28, look at verse number 13. Say, what's going on here? Why is Uriah just refusing to fall for the trap? Here, here's what I think. I think that one of two things is going on here. Either, number one, God is just keeping Uriah from, go, from going to back home because God wants your, uh, David's sin to be found out. The Bible says, be sure thy sin will find you out. You know, the other thing that, that may be going on here, and I'm not, I'm, I'm telling you, this is just a thought. I, I can't prove this to you from the Bible. The other thing that may be going on here is that Uriah might be a little suspicious. Because all of a sudden, he gets, leave, you know, leave he did not request while he's in the middle of a deployment. He comes back home, and there's a huge mess of food, you know, and he might be thinking to himself, why does David want me to spend a night with my wife? You know, that might be another uh, possibility that's going on there. I don't, I don't know. But look at Proverbs 28 and verse number 13. Proverbs 28 and verse number 13. Notice what the Bible says. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. That's David. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So you know what David should have done when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant? He should have just confessed his sin and forsaken it. But he tries to cover his sin. And the Bible says that he that covered this sin shall not prosper. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. So we see the crime of David's sin. We see the consequence of David's sin. We see the cover-up of David's sin. Listen, oftentimes when we sin, you and I sin, we want to cover it up because we don't want to deal with the shame. And we don't want... But look, it's better to just deal with it, confess it, ask God to forgive you and move on. It's better to do that than to take the next step. Because you know what we see next? The compounding of David's sin. His sin gets worse. See, oftentimes when you refuse to get right with God, you have to add sin to sin. You got to add a lie 
to a light. Notice what the Bible says. Look at verse 2 Samuel 11, look at verse 14. And it came to pass, 2 Samuel 11, verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him. Now that's pretty wicked. He, he says, I want you to find the hottest battle, put Uriah right at the front, and then secretly, without Uriah knowing, tell everybody to pull back and leave Uriah alone to be killed by the enemy. And notice what the Bible says, verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire you from him, that he may be smitten and die. Now he's adding murder to adultery. Verse 16. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servant of David. And Uriah the Hittite died. I want you to notice this word. Died also. Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the master uh, the matter of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, so this is Joab telling the messenger, when you go tell David, if David gets mad about the news, he said, say un, uh, uh, unto thee, where, wherefore approaches ye so nigh unto the city? When ye did fight, knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the, the son of uh, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? That's a reference to a story in, in the book of Judges, and we don't have time to, to go there, but... but he says, why went nigh to the wall? Here's what Joab is saying. Joab knew that this was a bad military tactic. Joab knew that what he was doing was wrong. Like militarily, it's not how you win battles. You don't come close to a wall because obviously whoever has the, the higher ground has the advantage. They can throw arrows, shoot arrows down at you. They can throw stuff at you. But Joab is telling the messenger, when you tell David what happened, tell him, notice, look at the last part of verse 21. Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. I want you to notice this word, also. Do you see that? So the messengers went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Notice this word, also. See, David did not only kill Uriah, David killed other men in the process of killing Uriah. You understand that? He had Joab do something that he knew would cause Uriah to die, yet there are other men. Now there are other women who are widows. There are maybe children who are fatherless because of David's cover-up. He not only killed Uriah, but he killed other men also. Look, there are consequences for sin. We'll see as we continue on, but David is going to bury a baby. There will be a little coffin for a child that dies as a result of David's sin. David will then also have a son who rapes his daughter as a result of this sin. David will then also have a son who kills another son as a result of this sin. David will then have that son rise up against him and take his kingdom and will fight a war against his own son. And his own son will die between a battle of father and son as a result of this sin. David will have his concubines, who are his slave wives, taken and publicly 
humiliated physically, sexually, by one of his sons as a result of this sin. And David wasn't thinking all that. David did not get up that night and say, I want to kill one of my mighty men. I want to kill Uriah the Hittite. I want to bury a child and I want to ruin my life and I want to ruin my children. He didn't get up that day. Here's what he decided. He decided, I'm not going to go to war. Then he decided, I'm going to look at this woman. Then he decided, I'm going to inquire. Then he decided, I'm going to lay with her. Then he decided, I'm going to cover it up. Then he decided, listen to me, it's choice after choice after choice. And as a pastor, one of the things that pains me is that I watch people make choices. And nobody gets up one day and says, I want to ruin my life, I want to ruin my marriage, I want to ruin my children. But they make choice after choice. I'm watching some of you make choices right now. That do not, will not. You say, well, they don't have to do it with lust, but they have to do it with the lust of money. They have to do it with other lusts and other sins. And I'm watching you, and look, I can't tell, I can preach about it, I can talk to you about it, you won't listen. But look, one day, I, I hope you're listening to me right now. One day you might wake up 20 years from now, divorce, your kids worldly, your kids on drugs, your kids not living for God. And I hope you will remember a pastor that said, Choices got you here, David. Your life is a series of choices. And no one gets up and says, I'm just going to go commit adultery and kill somebody today. But they decide, I'm going to marry another wife. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to look at that website. And I'm going to go down this road. And I'm going to meet up with this person. And they make choice after choice after choice. And sin has consequences. Uriah the Hittite died also. Notice verse 25. Then David said unto the messengers, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. I wish that was true. That's a true statement, but it's not true about this, because David created a plan to have these men killed. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. I want you to keep your place there in... 2 Samuel, we're, we're going to be done here in a minute, I, I promise. But go, go, to, go to Isaiah just real quickly. I want to show you a couple of ver- just a verse and, and, and we'll, we'll finish up. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verse 1. You're there and uh, if you kept your place in Proverbs, you got Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, and that cover with a covering. That's what we're talking about, right? The cover up. You got to cover it. You know, he that covered the sin shall not prosper. Cover with a cover, covering, but not of my spirit. Notice what he says, that they may add sin to sin. See, when you go down the road of sin, you'll add one sin to another sin. You know, there's that famous quote, oh, what a tangle, a web of lies we weave when first we practice to deceive. Life is a series of choices. And choices have consequences. So we saw the crime, David's crime. We saw David's, the, the, the crime of David's sin and the consequence of David's sins, the cover-up. And we saw how it compounded upon himself. Let's just real quickly look at the conclusion of David's sin and we'll be done. Go, go back to 2 Samuel uh, 11. Look at verse 26. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. Notice what the Bible says. And the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. I want you to notice how this chapter ends. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, 
and she became his wife and bare him a son. I want you to notice the last phrase. Because this entire chapter, God has not been mentioned. God has not even been thought about. And I think it's interesting how the Holy Spirit chose to end the chapter because he ends the chapter with this phrase, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And when you read that, you think like, it's almost like an afterthought. It's almost like you get the whole story, but in between, we're not being told how God feels about it or what God thinks about it. Just at the end of it, we are told that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You say, well, why is it kind of just thrown at the end? Why is it just kind of added as an afterthought? I'll tell you why that is. It's because usually when we are in sin, that's how we think about God. It's just an afterthought. We don't realize that God is watching Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13 says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto him to whom we have to do. God sees you. God sees me. Look, you can delete your little emails. You can delete your text messages. You can delete your phone calls. You can delete your history. You can sneak around. Listen, kids, you can say, my mom doesn't know and my dad doesn't know. You can say, my husband doesn't know and my wife doesn't know. You can say, I'm fooling the church. I'm fooling everyone. But you know who you're not fooling? God. You know who you're not fooling? God Almighty God, and you can have your little plans, and you can devise your little, your little tactics, and you can say, well, I'm going to lie about this. Well, I'm going to try this and try to get him to go back to his wife. Then I'm going to get him drunk. Well, that didn't work. Well, let's just put him to death, and let's just do this, and let's just do that. But listen to me. David's life goes downhill from here, and he will pay a heavy price. Why? Because God saw it. Because God saw him. Because God knows. You know what? At the end of the day, that's all that really matters. At the end of the day, we need to remember that everything is manifest in His sight. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That phrase, with whom we have to do, means the one that will judge us. Everything's naked and open to Him. So, David, go ahead. Have your little cover up, have your little party. But there are consequences for sin. Let's bow.